Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. What you are suggesting is undignified, unethical, and totally dishonest. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Wheezy. So when do we start? Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Tamler, we just talked for 45 minutes uh, uh, recording, and we're not going to release it. How are you feeling right now? Is your heart rate accelerated? Are your your skin looks a little flushed? Are you? Is your meditation kicking in? Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the the important benefits of meditation <laughs> is you never get worked up, you never start ranting. <laughs> You never start getting so frustrated that you start yelling into the microphone or anything like that. Like this is meditation a, it, has cured me of all of that. It's the word panacea is not genu- generally used in the genuine way, but I think that this is what you're saying is that it is. It, it in fact is a panacea. So <laughs> I think we made progress. We're going to boil down that discussion. We're not. We're not preventing our listeners from hearing the meat of the conversation. It was just a very inefficient meat. We should explain what it was that we were arguing about. Um, it was a topic like penises <laughs> that we sort of vowed not to talk about again after the last couple of episodes because I don't think either of us really enjoys discussion discussing it that much. But it's campus politics, right. and but we I mean we enjoy penis talk, just not yeah, politics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the problem is, is that. We are having James Lindsay on in the second segment that we already recorded. One of the authors of the infamous or famous hoax, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. So we had James Lindsay on in part because we were very critical of the hoax, but largely, though, the reaction to the hoax um, article that he wrote, uh, co-authored, The Conceptual Penis. So we wanted to practice what we preach and get him on and have him actually tell us what his... uh, what his reasons were and what his views were. And because in fact, a lot of what people said was no, no, he's actually more reasonable than what, it, what you guys said he was. So we thought we would um, have him on. He's a mathematician and an author. And I appreciate that he was willing to come on and talk to us about it. And so I don't know if minds were changed, but um, I don't know. I had some questions answered for, you know, like what I'm a little confused about in terms of, the source of the anger. But what we argued about was the prevalence of the problem of political correctness. 
whether or not there really is a problem, but more importantly, what would be evidence? Uh, because a lot of listeners take what Tamler's saying and they say, oh, is, you know, and they'll send us emails saying like, what about now? Is it a problem now? And, and I, I think that we got down to the heart of the issue, which is that while clearly there are things that are going on, it's unclear what the evidence says about the true prevalence of um, either students really reacting this way across campuses uh, across this country, right, in a way that would be threatening freedom of speech, or whether there is a justified fear that if we were to do anything wrong, that students on our campuses would get upset in that way. And so I think we arrived at some, um, some, some sense of like, but there isn't that much data to make a conclusion. And I think the only part where we disagreed was whether there's a burden on one side or the other to, to, to have the evidence in order to make the claim that there is or there isn't a problem. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, my, my position is that there is nowhere near enough evidence to justify the concern slash paranoia. Over right, and the amount of attention. And the and amount like, of attention, right. yeah. Right. Um, and I think, and I, this was another maybe point of disagreement, but, but I do think that, that the way it's being portrayed in the media is irresponsible and has led to a lot of resentment and anger from people who are just not getting an accurate picture of day-to-day life at most universities. And um, I actually think that I agree, like I didn't say it before, but I do agree with you that um, the kinds of people who are, uh, are reading these articles with fervor are the kinds of people who don't need to be riled up anymore, that they're getting at their... They're angry enough. Yeah. There, I think a helpful analogy for me that we, and we both sort of honed in on this, is like a disease or something where there's a few outbreaks of the disease and now you have to wonder whether this is something to really be afraid of and to take active steps to prevent or if this is just like one of those diseases that everyone's, you know, like CNN is going to be for, you know, 72 straight hours hyping people up about and then it'll we'll forget about it in two years right right SARS change local like change local sorry to anybody who lost a family member to SARS (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) Um, but yeah and I actually I I think that that one thing that ought to be done for anybody who wants to make a claim either way is a real survey of like what students are feeling about these things like is it really the case that most students think for instance or what percentage of them think that, in fact, Middlebury was totally justified. Like, we, we, if Charles Murray came, we would rock his car, too. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. And I suspect that would be wildly different across different campuses. Although, like, he has given <laughs> probably somewhere that, between for instance, 50 and 100 talks in the last, yeah. But just like the disease model, like, since that Middlebury incident, it could very well be that that that, that number goes dramatically down. Right. And yeah. so we don't know. I guess right. <laughs> this is yeah. the metaphor becomes a little crass here, but it's like how many carriers are there? Like we don't know if the right <laughs> carriers of the the politically correct like postmodernist uh, <laughs> disease. 
and that actually came out in the in the conversation as well, where it's yeah. like this. It's critical. It's at the heart of it, apparently, just a, a disdain for critical theory. But I, I actually think then a hoax article about you know anthropology or something would be just the last thing I'll say about the disease model. It points to an interesting, more general phenomenon of how it is. It is a hard position, and I feel this to argue that something hard. isn't a threat or isn't is is an overhyped threat when there are real people who are suffering there were i don't know if there were people who died from SARS but let's say that that there were like you don't want to be telling those like right. <laughs> those people no like it's it's not a horrible thing but at the same time it is really <laughs> crucial that this is a very isolated incident that isn't widespread you want to be conveying that information to the rest of the population so that they don't overreact i mean i think this is true with terrorism i think this is true with you know all sorts of very kind of highly publicized events like shark attacks but it, but it's a but it's a delicate position to try to argue like somebody tweeted at me like how would you or maybe this was an email actually how would you feel if you were brett weinstein and and I, I would it would suck like that was I I would feel bad, but yeah. that not like going to make me think that this is a widespread phenomenon over thousands of university campuses all across America. And I and I do think that for the record, something gets lost in these discussions where there is I think pro real progress that has been made that's good because uh people are unwilling to put up with some shit and the, here's where like maybe some of our listeners would just wholeheartedly disagree with me but i think that that um in fact there are a lot of reasons why i want students to care about for instance issues like gender issues and issues uh with people of color and all of the you know social uh, justice issues. yeah I, I like it this is something that that it's hard to separate the fanaticism from the reasonable takes that people, you know, probably shouldn't sexually harass their students. And this, right. is, I think, the, at the heart of my uh, dissatisfaction with even talking about this is, I think that when we, and the, you know, this will come across in the in the James Lindsay uh, discussion, that when we lump people into one side or another. I feel like what's lost is that nuanced, reasonable middle where you say, like, maybe we should be more careful about how we treat young women in our universities, but maybe we also shouldn't rock cars when, like, when elderly speakers are coming to talk about something. Um, and we haven't even read their book. <laughs> like, we haven't. I yeah. do. I have a friend who, like, granted, he's he's not from the United States, but he's, he said something like... Uh, yeah, you know, I really do feel it. Like, I can't tell the same kind of jokes that I used to be able to tell just a few years ago. And I was like, like, what? And he told this, like, racist joke. And I'm like, that's good. What? I'm like, are you, is this your suffering? Right. Your suffering is that you can't tell an off-color joke that involves a minority? Like, oh, my. <laughs> I mean, for all my saying that this isn't a, 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 a huge problem or it isn't anywhere near the scale that it's made out to be in the, in the media— I probably do feel a little bit more like I'm watching what I say, what use of examples that I'm using. But again, like often I'm like, oh, you know, that's probably a good thing that like I'm trying to <laughs> right. be more inclusive with my examples and I'm trying to, you know, like that's not necessarily right. a bad. And that's the other thing that makes this hard. It's like, oh, see, you're being chilled. 
Well, yeah. like there's a like there's a it's a it's a it's a fine line between being chilled and like realizing that you should. My firmest stance that's always been my stance is just don't be an asshole. And you could pretty much be an asshole social justice warrior, and you could be an asshole sort of right of center free speech proponent. And uh, and yeah. All right, All right. So here's something more fun to talk about. We are thanks to our Patreon listeners, and we really appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. Um, twice a year, we have a listener selected episode, and um, the way it works is anybody at any level of support can suggest a topic, and then you and I will narrow the topics down from all the suggestions to five and then give our five dollars an episode and up and by the way we'll take suggestions from from anybody like you don't even need to be on patreon it's not like we're ignoring the ones that come over email (laughs) but yeah well no i i mean i think technically we are for this yeah maybe 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 for this particular list but like we've certainly gotten good (laughs) feedback from people who you know their reasons why people can't be on patreon we uh always um take suggestions for topics please god we don't want to keep talking about uh campus politics but for this like for this particular patreon like I don't want to call it a gimmick. That sounds bad. But like (laughs) this is one where we called the list from our Patreon um, supporters. And then we're going to right now reveal the five finalists that our five dollar and up listeners will get to select on and we don't even know which ones we've picked so i'm i'm kind of curious as to how much overlap we'll have like this yeah like there's a part of me that thinks that there will be zero in the venn diagram this the circle will be not even touching but but then part of me who's worried that it's four out of five Uh, i know i mean i think there's going to be some overlap i think there's but we'll see like yeah we each came up with five yeah that's five and a half oh man good so i can do ties good how about i just give you one you give me one i give you like we'll just go down the line so here's my i'll start with my half because i have a feeling that this is such an easy one that we're probably going to do eventually anyway uh noemi full to see i would very very much like a movie episode on mulholland drive ah I'm so yeah. glad to hear you say that because <laughs> I love that idea, and I've been tr- I've tried to get you to do a uh, an episode on Mulholland Drive before. Have I said no? I, I don't, like I'm I if I have said no, it, w- it would have been not for any real reason other than it was a tentative no. Like, what yeah. are we gonna exactly right. say about it? Yeah. yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah. I would put that as one of the five choices, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, let's put it. I have. So a bunch of people have asked us about population ethics. <laughs> Thomas Man, Peterson is one of them. like Wikipedia that. <laughs> I well, so I I did like I actually <laughs> kind of found out like I like, it's not that we're unaware of this cluster of right. issues, but um but the thing that made me consider it for this list is you know like it has relations to the to the animal welfare movement and to issues of is it okay to to eat pork because you're actually giving pigs a chance if if they're treated right. well as they live they're getting a you're providing them even though you kill them at a certain point you're providing them with an opportunity to live that they wouldn't have had um 
And that same kind of thinking, which I'm sort of interested in, in part to justify my my own meeting. There's a large cluster of questions about, but I, but I don't know. Is it too broad? Do we not know enough about it? Actually, maybe we should just ask if anybody has a good, if they think like sort of a good essay for, you know, despite how smart we sound, <laughs> how broadly knowledgeable we are, maybe you know, like an intro to population ethics paper. Absolutely, I think we that that's kind of necessary for us. So maybe we'll table that for now. Yeah. All right, what's your next one? Uh, well, I, I, John Ownby said, my girlfriend and I often discuss human universals. A few times that was prompted by an episode of the show. I'd like to recommend human universals as a topic, which is, is very broad, but I actually think that there's some interesting questions there about what exactly is the evidence that there are me- sort of mental, psychological, human uh, universals from visual perception or aesthetic preference? Like- I would love, I didn't have this on there. Somebody else suggested, what do we make from the generalizing in psychology from weird populations, right. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic? So, you know, we it, it could link to there. Again, we've had Joe Henrik on. We have talked about this. Yeah, but that's actually such a such a focus on the differences that are often right. sort yeah. of uh, ignored, but but a positive take, sort of a positive in the sense of like making yeah. a claim about the universals. I don't know. I think there could be something interesting about what the evidence is, not just the assumption, but the actual yeah. evidence. Um, Hip to waist ratio. <laughs> it's a, it's a All right, that's a good one. This is one that again I had to sort of look up. But seems really interesting. Uh, so Kevin Miller said, how about Ernest Becker and the proponents of terror management theory? Seems like a grand like yeah. theory or prism to, like, to, to explain a lot of religion and cultural values and aesthetic values based on fear of our, our, or our denial of death or fear of death or coming to grips with death. Now, I don't know if this is... Like I, yeah. so, there's two things. There's Ernest Becker, who, who, who wrote a book about this that inspired social psychologists, and you probably know more about yeah. this, to come up with this theory. And I don't know if this is one of the many debunked theories in psychology. It's, or not. it's I a you good, might know more about that. It's a good. It's a good question, but I don't know if I've mentioned it on the episode, but. But uh, I'm for sure, like offline, I've talked to you about Ernest Becker's Denial of Death. It is a, it's a book that I read in college, I mean, one of my psychology courses. And it, I, I loved it. I, and I think that it, it, kind, it really shaped the way that I think. It's, I'm going to lump it together with the other one that I asked, which is uh, a question that somebody named Key uh, that's the only name they gave uh, about existentialism. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like I because had the same that thought. was to me my introduction to existentialism. He builds Becker's denial of death is built heavily on two foundations. One is like Kierkegaardian, especially existentialism, and two is Freudian psychoanalytic thought in in a way that is more respectable, I think, than than Freud himself. But uh, it's a super interesting book. Um, and one that, that I've often wondered if I were to read it now, would I just think it's a crock or would I be as fascinated by it? Um, as a young person reading Sartre and Camus, is it a different experience than a person, you know? Yeah. And, and even the question of why, you know, like, what yeah. is it? Uh, so, so I'd totally be up for existentialism about uh, 
broadly, denial of death specifically. Um, what's your next one? Um, so, Steve Eaton, I would like to hear you guys review your own PhD thesis. <laughs> now, this is a little navel-gazy, but I actually, and so he says, are you proud or mildly embarrassed of the work now? How would you do it differently if you could approach it again? Were you swayed in your thinking by a supervisor, and is that something you regret? Do you think the work is still valid? How have your approaches to the topic changed, and was there a paper slash conference slash event that triggered the change, or was it a gradual process? What is your relationship with your PhD supervisor like now? I, I don't know. Like, I actually would totally be up for this. The, my only reservation would be whether anybody cares about, like, the details of my own personal journey on this. But I love my thesis. It got published. I still talk about it. It's It was actually totally formed the foundation of much of my later work. This is a great one for the list in the sense that I have I, I'm not a good judge of how much this would engage the listeners. We could also put yeah. a Twitter poll. I, I would be <laughs> up for this too. I mean, my reservation is also that given that mine is on free will when I was a skeptic, uh, yeah. and then I have changed my mind about that, like there's a lot of this that might be covering old ground, but... Mine, just for the record, was on uh, the asymmetry and the way we may, we uh, do blame and praise. <laughs> What's your next one? <laughs> All right. This one I love. This is from Scott. The top five unanswered questions. That So, like, as a philosopher and a psychologist, what are these unanswered questions that you think could help solve or address uh, an outstanding problem? Yeah, it would be fun. I think we talked a little bit about this when we saw the message, and my only reservation was that I, that I'm not even convinced that philosophy is in the business of answering questions. So it's just sort of like the top five topics yeah. in philosophy. No, but see, like, like I, I disagree. Like, there's certain questions that if that that are, I think, largely empirical. That if we had the answers to those questions, they could help us solve a philosophical problem. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking in, uh, yeah. in ethics, especially. Yeah. So, like, that's how I would approach it. All right, fair enough. I, I'm convinced. Is that all of mine? Oh, no, no. There's one last one, which I think would actually be uh, really interesting. And, and to show you that I don't, I wouldn't even shy away from the, the uh, political pressure about this. Uh, um, Thomas Peterson wrote, types of intelligence, which are there, uh, are they legitimate? Given what general mm -hmm. intelligence correlates with, does it make sense to talk about those intelligences? And one of the reasons that I think uh, I would be willing to talk about this is that I studied... Um, my, one of my advisors, Peter Salve, the now president of Yale, was the person who who coined the term emotional intelligence and had developed the theory of emotional intelligence. So I have a little bit of, of background in at least the multiple intelligences approach. Um, and I'd be totally up for rereading some recent stuff on on what intelligence is, what it predicts, and even about race and intelligence. I, I really have no problem Whoa. with that. Yeah. All right. I mean, we had another one that asked us more specifically, and we'll probably shy away from this a little bit, but the controversial podcast with Sam Harris and and uh, and, and yeah, Charles, Murray. Charles Murray, and then the Vox article by Richard Nisbet and two other psychologists yeah. criticizing it. And I mean, my issue is I don't know any of this data, I don't know any of this right. evidence, and so you would have to run that, but. But I like the generalized intelligence, uh, like like an emotional. Yeah. Int I'm interested in emotional intelligence. 
I think like I'm almost done with mine. Uh, I'm done. That was a, my last one. A Misrob. Would you consider discussing the work of philosopher Karl Popper, his theory of knowledge, his critical rationalism, his way of, you know, the demarcation problem in the philosophy of science, I think would be interesting. William Holbach uh, suggested the modular theory of the mind and the split brain experiments. Hmm. We've discussed a little bit of the modular theory of the mind with the evolutionary psychology episode, but I don't know if we've talked about the split brain experiments. I always found those kind of fascinating. Yeah. So do we have five? Like, what are our five? Um, all right. I think we're both into the existentialism. Ernest Becker and existentialism. Slash existentialism. Yeah. Mulholland Drive. Um, something about ethics of population. I think we let's. I don't know if that should make the list. Maybe we should okay. table that until we have a better sense of like the article that we would discuss right. or like. Uh, we tabled the PhD thesis. Um, we could put it on there. Human top universes. five unanswered questions. Top five. Yeah, we do top five. Let's do. Okay, for sure. Existentialism, Mulholland Drive. Top five unanswered. Do what do you think about human universals? I like it. Okay. I would put that like on that. there. And then now I'm forgetting, so that's four, forgetting what else. Intelligence? Yeah, let's, let's say intelligence. And we could even get a guest for intelligence. I have this sort of snobby idea that I'm developing and that I want to turn into like a popular op-ed or something called, <laughs> it, it, that it would be called like Nouveau Smart. It's like, <laughs> you know how the Nouveau Riche people who have just yeah. come into money, but they don't know like how to spend it with taste and class, and like yeah. it's sort of it's a it's so annoys people with old term. money like like you. Um. <laughs> we just have no money. <laughs> I think there's a analog for like smart people, like who have just sort of you know like they've discovered skeptical arguments against the existence of god or they've <laughs> you know like they've come across some new body of knowledge or some new way of thinking and you know the 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 like strassonian compatibilism the right, and they get all it's like right that. as far as it goes but they don't know how to handle their new intelligence with class you know uh <laughs> I don't think this would uh, be part of the episode. We, that's something that we could very easily get accused of. <laughs> we don't know how to handle our intelligence with class to the extent that there is any. <laughs> no, I disagree. Or... Like, I, I think you and I are, I mean, partly I, I do think this comes with age. Like, there was a time where I was nouveau smart. Um, but you see, you have, uh, I refuse. So we're not going to talk about this because, uh, like, uh, um, no, I know, you find a way to spin everything into like this, these like political topics that I don't give a fuck about, like the, your anger at new atheists. I don't have anger against new atheists. Also, I'm not going to talk about it because, you know, I don't want to burn it for my like breakthrough op ed. That's right. That's right. It would be if you got an op-ed. You know, I, I have some advice for you as an old op-ed writer um, yeah. myself. <laughs> Your nouveau op-ed. You might need some advice on the ha how to handle the fame with class. <laughs> uh, All right. So that's it for today. We have our five. Thank you so much to all our Patreon supporters. We, you are what keeps us going. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Tweet us at Tamler, at Ease, at verybadwizards. Rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. We always post ep the episode on Facebook, and then there's 
usually a lively conversation. Uh, on Instagram, we have a Very Bad Wizards account that my daughter largely runs. But Are you on Instagram yet, personally? N- no. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly. I, mean, I really am like an old person when it comes to Instagram. But like Snapchat... I guess Instagram seems like, but Snapchat was everybody was doing, and then all of a sudden now it just seems like nobody's doing. It's like uh, no, it came kids and are gone. still super into it. Um, but I am glad that you're not sending me those penis pictures anymore on Snapchat. Well, no, I, I don't really just... do it on Snapchat, like because <laughs> I don't just... want them to disappear <laughs> you want them right to away. Last. <laughs> you print them out at the pharmacy, <laughs> put them in a box. Big circumcised masterpiece, <laughs> aesthetic masterpiece. Well, a year, all it takes is a year and a half, and you don't have to be circumcised anymore, <laughs> my friend. No. So, yes, thank you to all of the people who make this worthwhile, and uh, we will be back with James Lindsay. <laughs> Let's go, nigga. Let's go. And if they were there, they were dusting. Doom brung that bong. Doom brung that bong. Doom brung that bong. Their rhymes ain't worth the wait. Doom brung that bong. Their rhymes ain't worth the wait. Doom, doom brung that bong. Their rhymes ain't worth the wait. Ain't worth the wait. Doom brung that bong. Doom brung that bong. Their rhymes ain't worth the wait. Ain't worth the wait. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We are here with James Lindsay, who is an author and in particular the uh, co-author of the hoax article the conceptual penis as what was it again as a social construct that is you had it so we were a little critical of the hoax and and the skeptic piece on the last episode um, and in particular the way people perceived it and the way i think that you guys portrayed it uh, in the article, in the skeptic article, um, as providing evidence that gender studies has some crippling academic 
defects. They're crippled by being tempted towards morally fashionable nonsense, and that undermines their critical abilities to the point where they might accept something like a parody article, which you guys um, had written, you and Peter Bogosian. We had a couple listeners sort of tell us that we should give you a chance that that you guys, maybe in the skeptic piece, hadn't represented the true purpose of the hoax, or I don't know. So that, that Well, it became complicated we... along the way is a better way to word that. Um, in the skeptic <laughs> piece, we tried to pay homage to the fact that it became complicated and yet tried to communicate something at the same time, which is, of course, that we do believe that gender studies is critically compromised by fashionable excuse me, fashionable nonsense and moral bias, ideological blinkering, as a matter of fact, to use Charlotta Stern's language. And simultaneously, once we realized that we were going to be going with an open access journal, we realized that we were going to be introducing a confounding variable, as they call it, in statistics, and that we were now looking at two problems at once. So we initially talked in our Peace and Skeptic about how we immediately recognized once we took on the open access project as well that there is the issue that low quality journals are a serious problem um, within academic publishing that deserves attention. And there have been many other hoaxes recently in the past uh, several years, hundreds, as has been pointed out to us, of fields including sciences that have been successfully done to kind of reveal that there's a problem in open access journals. These were not our initial intention. We didn't set out at first to go after open access journals, but it landed in our laps. So we took it, figuring we could draw a lot of attention to that problem. Simultaneously, this did nothing to obviate the fact that we still deeply suspect that there are issues in gender studies. And there are reasons that our our hoax, the satire piece that we wrote and submitted as a hoax article, reveals aspects of both of those problems, or draws attention, I should say, really, to both of those problems. You did submit it to one gender studies journal who rejected it without Mm -hmm. sending it out for peer review. The pay-per-published journal that it was, the open access journal that it was published in, is not a gender studies journal. So in what sense do you think you have drawn attention to or provided evidence for your initial uh, suspicion? So let let me ask a kind of simple question. Um, I'll ask, I guess, two of them. Why is Melissa McCarthy's portrayal of Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live A, so funny, and B, so effective at what it does. And secondly, and related, why is the television show Portlandia, which satirizes life in the city of Portland, so funny and so effective at what it does? (laughs) I may question both of those premises. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Portland is hilarious. Uh, So, no, so you're pointing to something right about satire and humor. Um which is that it is pointing out something deeply true in a way that will make people listen um, where otherwise they wouldn't have. Um, although I don't, I don't want to st- step around the question of what I think at the, at the heart of, of, of my at least initial reaction to the piece was that um, the sort of accusation of kind of, of motivated moral reasoning 
uh, or sort of motivated reasoning driven by moral uh, concerns, which I certainly agree with. And I think if, if you know either Tamler and I, we have very uh, sort of little patience for, for the kind of nonsense that you were critiquing. Um, but, but, you know, here, here's a case where uh, one, one could say that the field has successfully withstood the attack of publishing gibberish and given that any field with these sort of predatory journals will publish anything that it is equivalent to zero um, and perhaps even a point in favor of the editorial staff of Norma for rejecting you. Uh, otherwise, you have an unfalsifiable claim, right, which is just, well, we wrote a, we wrote a gibberish piece of satire. The publication of that piece isn't what is making right. any illustration. So, so well, submit that, that to McSweeney's or The Onion or whatever, not... Right. Like, but, but that's not the way it was portrayed, at least, in sure. the skeptic piece. Sure. So, again, there's a two-pronged problem. Once we decided to go with an open-access journal that may or may not have questionable uh, value, we realized we're going to point to two variables at once. And so we have to draw what lessons we can, whatever our initial intentions with the hoax were. Does it count as a point in favor of, of gender studies? I don't think it does. And the reason is that we didn't write a particularly sneaky hoax. As a matter of fact, we wrote an absolutely ridiculous pastiche. Um, the question becomes, if you want to defend gender studies, on, on the charges of morally biased uh, views and obscurantist language. It, it, it's going to require, I think, and I always thought this, a slightly sneakier paper. Of course, the more obnoxious the satire, the more pointed it is, the more successful it is. That's why Melissa McCarthy gets so much attention, driving her little podium around, ramming people with it, squirting it with a super soaker full of soapy water or whatever the joke is. That's why it gets so much attention is because it is over-the-top ridiculous. So if you want to do an academic hoax, you have to look at it in two regards. You have to look at how much of an impact can you get by being obnoxious and how much of, uh, how sneaky do you have to be? So how much do you have to turn that down in order to make it happen? The general theory or general model should really be always that the better the journal, the more sneaky it has to be. But that doesn't necessarily exonerate the, the fact that a completely ridiculous pastiche was rejected doesn't exonerate the charges. It only says, OK, this journal's capable of detecting absolutely ridiculous satire that's way right. over the top I, and I, I guess i'm not i'm i'm not at all even thinking that it would exonerate right i mean an n of one can't exonerate any more than an n of one can sort of as sokol pointed out in his original hoax that an n of one can't condemn either right but if if you were designing say this as a true demonstration and one of the claims is that um the field standards are so shoddy as to publish meaningless gibberish and you can't get it published in, a few, in anything but the kind of journal that any field would publish something in, right? So it's not a gender studies journal, and so well, they they do it, have at least five or six people on their list of ex expert reviewers who uh, have the relevant expertise. Whether they successfully sent it to the right people or not, I can't comment upon because that's blind. But they do have on their list of expert reviewers at least either five or six. Uh, faculty members at some significant universities with the relevant expertise and one of the two reviewers however cursory uh if it's one of the relevant experts her uh commentary may have been 
on our our peer review panel uh, or feedback. I'm sorry. It demonstrated superior knowledge of the field to what we have because it spoke that moral language. Said our thesis captures the issue of hypermasculinity via a multi-dimensional and non-linear process. I don't even know what that means. And they also recognized, and this is more more interesting, they recognized the fact that we named in the abstract a gender studies technique, a technique used in feminist discourse, actually, which is the post-structuralist discourse analysis, which we even mislabeled as post-structuralist discourse criticism in the in the abstract and then we put it nowhere in the paper because we didn't know what it was and so the (laughs) the reader read the paper sufficiently to recognize that we claimed it would be in the paper and that it isn't in the paper until we went back and i went to wikipedia looked up what it means and added a bunch of sentences and a quote from focal that uh make it look like i know what i'm talking about with, with with that style of of commentary and so there are probably deep problems here. They are pro- possibly lazy in their uh, in their peer review process. But the charge that the journal is is predatory, the charge that is merely vanity, the charge that it is um, that that nobody there had the relevant expertise. Just as we said, we didn't say it's wrong in skeptic. We said it's facile, and it is. There's more. There 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 are reasons to believe there's more at play here. Right. Uh, so I, I don't disagree. And in fact, the I I said in the previous episode, the value of the hoax lies to me in the the exposing of that kind of sloppy publishing. We, we I agree, just don't by think the way. That, like, if, but like, I don't think it takes much in a many fields to show that there are journals that are publishing all kinds of mess just because it, it generates profit it, it, and it I satisfies think a, deep problem. a deep problem yes so academic yeah. tenure contracts often i don't know if you all's academic tenure or promotion contracts involve allowing you to be promoted or gain tenure for these kinds of publications but i just read an article in the chronicle of higher ed talking about how desperately bad this problem is in and we're talking outright predatory journals at this point not even these marginal quality journals. I think we've started two important conversations is, is really ultimately it. So the fact of publication, and this will be, I'll be very clear about it. And I wish we had been a little more clear in our skeptic write-up, but we didn't fully understand it ourselves yet. And then we are actually publishing another piece in skeptic sh- pretty soon, detailing criticisms and, and a lot of detail. And I think it cut, it cuts pretty tightly, but this is, this is, you know, nuance. The fact of publication points to a problem with the journal and journals more broadly that needs to, <clears throat> excuse me, that needs to be discussed. Hundreds of science journals have been similarly hoaxed and the conversation was small. This is a bigger conversation. So, okay, good. On the other hand, the status of the paper itself as a satire points out another problem that can draw people to an existing body of evidence. And as it turns out, good scholarship that's not satire uh say done by like Steven Pinker and Charlotta Stern pointing out the deep abiding problems that we suspected exist in gender studies and so um that's what I was asking about with Melissa McCarthy in Portlandia it doesn't matter necessarily that they're funny it doesn't matter if you believe they're effective the satire sticks and satire only sticks when it's recognizable for what it is. That's why the hoaxes on biology didn't stick. Everybody knows biology has good epistemology. 
the hoaxes on psychology uh, might have some weight because of the replication crisis. But, but you understand, right, that you that that it sounds like you're sort of shifting the intention of what you are trying to do, the way it's portrayed and certainly the way it's it was received was this exposes gender studies as a fraudulent field or at least as a field that is crippled by these just uncritically accepting anything that they find that fits their moral agenda. And now you're saying, no, 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 it didn't say anything specific about gender studies except that the satire, because it was on point and because you can find other abstracts that you can't really distinguish it from because they're equally ludicrous or at least ludicrous sounding, that was the goal. That that was... It, it, you see what I'm saying? It seems I like... I see what you're saying, but I don't accept the charge. Yeah. There was a, a lot of aspect of this was once we accepted a two-variable problem, it's, okay, let's see what happens. Now, I'm not going to speak for, for Sam Harris or Michael Shermer or Richard Dawkins or any of these other people, although I do appreciate that they understood that, that a satire does actually point to abiding problems on the fact that there is maybe not perfect indistinguishability, which is what maybe would be more convincingly conveyed by, say, had uh, gender and society or feminist theory or science picked this up. Um, you know, one of the higher I mean, ranked journals. In to the be field. honest, it's perfectly indistinguishable for me. It's not only um, perfectly indistinguishable, is... <laughs> thanks to the new peer review or real peer review. Um, I, I keep saying new because they had to make a new one. Uh, but their their Twitter feed, because of that, I've now been introduced to two papers one of which was published in Norma that that desk rejected ours, and our paper is easily conceivable had we been slightly sneakier with the language a little less ridiculous as a direct consequence of the research of that paper. That one fo focuses on a Freudian line of poppycock called uh, the phallic masculinity project of, of, of human development. And it says it's directly oppositional to the feminine and yada, yada, yada. But he distinguishes from toxic hypermasculinity and there's our, our, our in if we wanted to run with it, if we'd known about that. A second paper written by Annie Potts, who we cited in ours for her other paper known as The Essence of the Hard-On. Annie Potts published another paper that talks about the penis mind and all of the toxic problems in masculinity related to the penis mind. As far as I can tell, on a fairly cursory, to be to be fair, I just don't have time to delve too deeply into all this, on a fairly, fairly cursory reading of her paper and a detailed reading of her abstract, if you go in and almost, line for line, substitute out penis mind and substitute in conceptual penis, and then you add a section of nonsense at the end about climate change, you have the same paper. And so let me get to, I think, a, a, a real important question here, which is uh, you've said that there's there was a compound that getting published in this quality journal introduced some another variable. Um, and and we've we've you know pushed you on the conclusions that you can reach. But Tamler and I and sorry, Tamler, I know you had another point, but this, I think, is one that's that I don't want to not get to, because I think Tamler and I were uh, were most critical of the reaction of others um, to the weight of the evidence. So even let's even say that your skeptic piece had been super measured um, in the way that that we are saying that we didn't think it was. Um, I uh, the the quick reaction 
by many people who are sympathetic to the claim that this is a field of gibberish was to me another point of data arguing the very same thing that you're arguing against gender studies, which is that the appeal of morally fashionable uh, gut reaction to uh, even the slightest hint that there's supportive confirmational evidence is gets everybody going. And that's certainly what I saw Pinker and Shermer and, and Harris and Dawkins doing, that they actually seemed to not even... Right. This is a real problem, like the confound, the two variable problem that, that it is called a confound for a reason. You you are left unable to distinguish the true causal uh, effect of one or the other variable. And yet they were so prone to wanting to take this as evidence that they jumped on it. Well, so isn't this morally driven desire to reach con to reach conclusions the same? Well, I, there? I can't diagnose other people. So I won't. Well, you are trying to. You're trying to do that with gender studies. No, I'm. I'm not going to speak for the motivations of people like Sam Harris or Michael Shermer or Richard Dawkins. But you don't have to but speak I to their motivations. Can, you can speak to the same actions as you're accusing the gender studies I can people speak, of, of accepting uncritically. I can right? speak to exactly a, a longer than tweet length comment left by Richard Dawkins on Jerry Coyne's blog the day after it was published, and Richard Dawkins wrote that he was. He wrote about the status of the satire. In fact, he was flattered that people thought that he might have the talent to write such a satire. And he talked only in terms of satire. He didn't even bother with the narrow and, to me, boring question of the status of publication of the thing. As as, as Schirmer put on, on Sokol's comments in Skeptic this week, he wrote that had this been published in The Onion, he would have drawn the same conclusion because the status of the satire is being is, is so overwhelmingly indicative of there being a problem there just like with melissa mccarthy ramming people with the podium just like with our paper talking about the penis being the cause of all problems even though it doesn't really exist but, but melissa mccarthy's satire of sean spicer doesn't provide evidence that sean spicer is really like that because they already believe that Sean Spicer is a buffoon, right? I'm sure there are people who do not believe Sean Spicer is a buffoon who do not <laughs> find that convincing, right? So I, I, another way of saying this is, had you published on your blog this as satire, would it have received the same amount of attention? And I think you're doing a little bit of what Tamler was saying earlier, was having your cake and eating it too, which is the force of, of the argument is that it got published and then there's a bit of a bait and switch where you just call it satire. But the satire, as you point out, is 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 sort of it's if you already disagree with gender studies, it is nigh indistinguishable from from a real gender studies paper. And therefore, the field itself is a satire. I mean, from what some people have it. pointed out to us is that if you do agree with gender studies, that it's nigh indistinguishable, as they pointed out that the conceptual penis is actually an, a, a, a valid concept in the field that describes the uh, it contains the same problems. As, as what we claimed it does, so that we've... In fact, Alan Sokol said that. Well, Alan Sokol, yeah, he, he in, in his recent article, and we'll link to this, um, actually said something that I think that I want to get to as well, which is uh, in, you, in your quest for providing meaningless claims, there are times when you actually argue and provide sort of reasons that aren't complete, completely ludicrous, right? Like, the, it's not mere gibberish. See, that's the whole thing, though. That's the whole point. That's what our suspicion... And by the way, in our, our article in Skeptic, what we said is on the evidence, our suspicions 
are justified. I, I, people are really jumping up and down about us claiming suspicions are justified as opposed to it is this, which is a much stronger claim. But, w- but guess, you do but agree that, that that <laughs> sentence is equivalent to saying our hoax provided some, not decisive, but some evidence that our suspicions are true, are plausible. Sure. Yeah. And it, it does. It absolutely does. Well, I stand by that 100%. That because, again, we're not talking about a vanity journal. We had at least one reviewer with the relevant expertise. And we had a situation where the journal was going to be supported by university libraries. So it's not necessarily complete crap. Or if it is, thank God we exposed that. Uh, wait, thank God. Whoops. And then... Um, <laughs> can, I, um, can, I, can I broaden the discussion? So, cause, sorry, yes, please. Um, I'm wondering why gender studies in particular seems to be such a target, seems to inspire so many of these kind of angry responses. Now, let's say for the sake, let's concede, and I, I don't know, like I've blissf- I'm, I'm blissfully unaware of a lot of the stuff that goes on in some of the, the more obscure um, academic fields. Like it's, philosophy of mind. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you could write parodies of in my own field that um, that you would could. also be tough to distinguish from the real from the real uh, indeed you know, the the real analytic hardcore philosophy. Like, but let's say for the sake of argument, gender studies is this kind of fringe field that their critical standards are lax, and they really are more geared towards trying to promote a political agenda. Why such focus on them in particular it's not something that's taking over universities it's it is not actually if you've been paying attention so, to so the this news, is what i want to hear yeah it so, is. so explain that yeah it is so why how many you, campus incidents have there been that have made national or international news in the past two years talking about so-called campus madness how many articles like jonathan height and many others respectable scholars have written talking about these problems that are coming up at campus after campus goldsmiths in the uk college of london or university of london and then evergreen state college which of course is a special case in in washington just last week so how are th- how are those but about how is that gender, gender how are those studies? about how are those about gender studies because they are rooted in the exact language and exact claims being made by postmodern constructivist language they are exactly the scholarship being coming that's coming out of those fields you are not ever hearing the history department going nuts you're never seeing the school of music getting bored and deciding that mezzo soprano is too hard to sing and then protesting some other part of the college it's always critical theory every time every single time so this is happening they are taking over they are at uc riverside they are, as in right now, trying to make gender studies courses a course requirement for every student. You must take at least one gender studies requirement. Now, granted, this is coming well, out of the student body, not out of the student government, not out of the faculty yet. But it's so there's something that really is is it gets it's it's bugging me that, for instance, among the reasons that you're listing are that gender studies is a requirement. Like that that is that is only a reason if you already buy your conclusion, right? So like I 
the the same rigor no, with no, it's no, also no, not a requirement no, no, anyway. That's not actually accurate. So if this were an evangelical, well, but that's what you said. James. No, 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 no. That's if this were said. an evangelical Christian <laughs> department led by Alvin Plantinga or something like that with Reformed epistemology, trying to make it so that Christian scholarship was again a required field of study, then you everybody would be losing their minds. Every student at a, say a state college or state university has to but, now take. But James, the Christian, that's because we have separation of church and state. Right, and so like, the question that's is a, that's an entirely different reason. Except like, that you it's can't not just toss out there. Except that it's not. But this is perfectly. Let me use the word isomorphic. We have a field gender studies that has now started to use feminist standpoint epistemologies, radical constructivist epistemologies, has openly said contemptuously published papers, published books, saying that the established epistemologies of philosophy and science are a tool of oppression against women and minorities. We have what is identifiable as a secular religion that is based on claims that ignore science, have demonstrated by Charlotta Stern, Stephen Pinker, have a demonstrated ideological blinkering where they ignore scientific evidence and philosophical criticism if it's against what they want to do. They have a clear moral bias where if we had tried to publish publish a conceptual, as Sokol wrote, not me, a conceptual vagina and talking about the f- toxic femininity that flows from it and how I'm not, I can't even, I can't even say what toxic femininity might be. Because if I do, I'm going to get a thousand emails this week attacking me. And but that's some... because there are actual reasons. Like that you, I, I take it that what you're not denying is that sexism has existed, right? I, I mean, don't there's... deny that. In fact, I think there are right. desperately important problems in, 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 in gender and society. And I think right. that so why is... isn't that the simple reason why toxic femininity wouldn't be published, right? Why? So because I, this... because. We have a field that is intentionally and demonstrably ignoring established epistemologies to push a political agenda that has a clear bias. It doesn't matter whether sexism exists and therefore we can only talk about it in one direction. The fact that we've erased the concept of sexism and replaced it with a narrower concept called systemic sexism, and that's the only one anybody is allowed to discuss lest they get just pilloried. Look at Rebecca Tuvel for looking at this whole transracial thing in Hypatia. If you go off the orthodoxy, you are going to get pilloried. You know, it's really the, difficult the, to find by anybody. By a very to, small segment of the university community, Rebecca Tuvel was defended by the vast majority of academics in our field, in my field, in philosophy. And good. also, uh, good. By, there was a very tiny sliver of the professional philosophical community who quite wrongly lambasted her and lambasted Hypatia for the publication of that paper. Everybody else rose to her defense. You guys have a um, podcast. You guys are professors. I challenge you guys. Do what we did. See how this goes for you. Reach out. No, try but, but to find James. try to find a person uh, who has worked with gender studies or works near or in gender studies or in gender sociology, which is more respectable and answers these hard questions with more rigor. Reach out to one of these people and see if you can find one that will criticize gender studies openly. I see if but you can find but, one. But it's okay. I mean, like I, I I get it, right? I mean, if if there's but but. But you're sort of preaching to the choir, and and in fact, yes. Look, we and I don't so, think we've hesitated. We haven't hesitated to be critical, and here we are. What I'm saying is is something a little deeper about the the reluctance to admit that morally fashionable, motivated reasoning can occur 
on both sides of 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 this debate. And, well, certainly, and it, everybody it can me. do this. I mean, I wrote a it's, book about how this happens and why the atheist community, as it was, was a prime example of it happening, and everybody should stop calling themselves atheists. And then I went and gave a talk about that book calling atheism the Iraq War of Identities. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I get motivated right. reasoning. So, so what is what went wrong? What what happened that we can't talk to to our gender studies colleagues and say? Do you think it's possible that a one version of the article that you would have written would have been uh, these are empirical uh, facts that we think gender studies isn't challenging and tried to publish that? I mean, we could, right. except uh, Steven Pinker wrote that book in two thousand three and called it the blank slate. Yeah, to much acclaim. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure who, right. who the so, enemy so, is here, right? Like so, if you follow Alan Sokol's hoax in '96, and then you follow Stephen Pinker's "The Blank Slate," and then any scholarship in that that vein since, the question is why? Why was Charlotta Stern able to demonstrate clear ideological blinkering in papers that cite doing gender, which is the Weston Zimmerman paper that's most cited in gender studies, the kind of seminal piece of modern modern gender studies uh, work? Why is it that she was able to cite such clear ideological blinkering only in papers that, that cite that and follow the publication and uh, general acceptance a year after of the blank slate? It's because there is this problem where you have a group of people adhering to a different set of epistemology and who are rejecting outside criticism and ignoring it as though it doesn't doesn't matter. And then as far as them wanting to be activists, go to their websites, go to gender studies homepages at every university you can find a gigantic proportion of them mentioned that their their whole objective is to train activists i mean so here's the thing like so most of the uh of the campus occurrences that you're referring to are about race um and so while right. while there right. is a strain of postmodernism, like i don't think that even you would have the balls to publish something about race <laughs> right like um yeah it's a little dodgy isn't it it's a it little is. dodgy, and does it, it does that not tell you something? It, well, what it tells me, though, here's one thing that it tells me, is lumping together everything like campus protests, postmodern ideology in Foucault, um, uh, charges of implicit racism. There's this lumping of us against them that I fear is not, and this is really my fear, is like you, could, you don't need to convince me that there is crappier stuff published in some of these, uh, these postmodernist fields. It's that my fear is that we're just that we're not going to make any progress by mocking each other. I mean, Richard Dawkins was told exactly the same thing post the God delusion. So who knows? I, I mean, I, I, do you think I he's don't made think progress? he has made much progress post the God delusion. I mean, I don't like, know the, uh, the proportion of nuns rose substantially. How much that had to do with the God delusion is hard to say. Um, Wait, but certainly atheism pro- and the God delusion as a, as a juxtapose, juxtaposition of two words that are not socially acceptable 10 years or 20 years ago. I mean, that's, that's cultural furniture now. I mean, but, God delusion. Okay. Yeah. But, but wait, I, I'm confused as to the proportion what? of nuns going up. Isn't that evidence? Oh yeah. That yeah. yeah, work? yeah. The, the people who identify in surveys as being, uh, having no religion, they, they, they select a bubble that says none under religious oh, affiliation. Were, oh, none. And so it, <laughs> no, not not Catholic nuns. No, ha, not the <laughs> I was like, Sorry. Had the God delusion made convents more popular. We're not familiar with the atheist, you know, your terminology and, and <laughs> Sorry, private lingo. I, I mean, <laughs> I thought that was just general uh, general sociological terminology at this point. 
So uh, I, I'm just confused. It seems like the critique, although it seems to target gender studies, is at something broader because, I mean, do you know how many of the Evergreen State protesters were gender studies majors? I don't I, I don't know, but I no, didn't I don't see that as that being before. part of the story. It seems like the target is broader, but somehow gender studies always is in the center of the bullseye. Well, gender studies, it isn't related to race, but then also uses the critical theory. So you have so a... So it's the critical theory that... that it's critical theory. That's, that's at the, I mean, just they call it just theory. At this, that's the umbrella That's the umbrella problem. And then or, within under, under the feminist side of it, which is women's studies and gender studies, you have all of this stuff, like I said, about standpoint epistemology and radical constructivist epistem epistemology. So we're talking, you know, Judith Butler and, and Sandra Harding and people like that coming up with this stuff. And when again, I can't get away from this, just like with with reformed epistemology from from the evangelical theologians. You you can't make up your own epistemologies that outside your bubble get nothing but criticism and then proceed with them and that not send up a big red flag saying something is badly wrong here. And then if your main objective is to produce activists and those activists are changing the culture around you, especially at the university, but to the point where Obama's citing, you know, a few years ago cited the, the one in five rape study that's been thoroughly debunked. Um, that, that was completely, completely biased. So the, the, the orthodoxy and then the doctrines coming out of that orthodoxy are spreading deeply into the, both the culture to the point where the president of the United States is, is quoting this stuff to the point where our current president of the United States is largely elected and a backlash to a lot of this stuff. If you have any conservative friends, they'll happily tell you that there, there are significant problems here. And so why is gender studies in the bullseye? Well, partly because it uses critical theory, partly because so many of its, its, papers seem to be fairly vapid and partly because as you pointed out everybody's kind of scared to try to tackle it with race for well, I don't really think, damn I, good reasons well but i don't think people are being too scared to tackle like, there's no lack of critique and and anytime sort of the free speech thing comes up i'm you know it's usually in the context of public discourse complaining ab about uh, about these people so i like i don't really think that that there's a fear that of, of taking over and whatever the concerns with with Trump are like it's it's just evidence that in fact there is a substantial portion of people who don't want to have anything with these to do with these ideas but here's my deep concern which is again I can be on board with the the sort of bull, the bullshit of critical theory I think it is mostly a crock of shit my concern is pedagogically what's happening uh, to our students is that Suppose that you have a student who's inclined toward fairly liberal ideas about justice um, when it comes to race and and is inclined to believe that that society is unfair to women. I feel like they are getting pushed in one of two extreme directions now. They are often seeing a group of people criticizing and mocking their ideas in a blanket fashion, and that pushes them more toward uh, endorsing some of these softer ideas. Like I, I think that the solution isn't to create this this the equivalent of a of a an, an all out culture war, um, but rather to try to engage. And, and that I may be true. That may be true. Um, the question is whether it's gone to whether it's gone too far for that point in a culture war. Is the seeds of culture war are already set? Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. I don't know. I honestly have no idea. But if they are, satire is the tool. If they aren't. 
then um, I encourage you, everybody listening, try to engage, get active, go learn about feminist standpoint epistemology. It's not all bullshit, right? I mean, there is some insight to the standpoint epistemology um, to, and, and to challenging. Uh, that's sort of like saying that I could, could leave here in Knoxville and get to Chicago by driving south if I'm willing to go far enough. No, it's not, James. I mean, this is like no, how many not. of these, like, like I, I do pride it, in the fact is, that we're engaging. Actually. But the reason that that it is exactly like that is because the grain of truth inside of it is everybody's biased. But the answer is to work harder to be rigorous at cutting away bias. Not to say that the methods, like the scientific method that we have for doing that, are tools of oppression and then say that the this is feminist standpoint epistemology by the way the necessary right. tool is to introduce more biases because they give people stronger objectivity that's 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 fine i mean it's if you fine. don't but but if you don't want to accept that there are some people who don't make that jump but who actually care about about uh say the representation of of the standpoint of women or minorities like who who are attempting some rigor um, that this is this gets to the heart of why I think you know, like th being rejected with your parody at Norma is like anybody inclined to take that position would say, hey, at least there are some people who hold standards. But I don't hear you conceding anything like that, but rather relying on these kinds of blanket attacks to an, an entire group of people who some of whom actually might be willing to critically engage. Right, I, I invite I, all of them who want to to do so. I encourage it widely, and if, but if that happens, but if what, I will celebrate it and promote it. But what does it mean to engage with you when what you return with is metaphors about driving south to get north? This, like, this is—I don't hear you engaging very much, right? Like, I don't. Hear I'm not an expert in the field. I can't engage on the terms. I barely know it. But that's the point, though. The point is you don't have to be to let, you, you've just asked us to you, you've encouraged us to go learn about feminist theory and now you're telling us that you don't know anything about it. I, and you've certainly opined on it. I've said that everybody should go learn about it and become informed about it, but that's a difference from saying that hey, I'm an expert at this moment, let me tell you about it. That's, that's a big difference from there. I, but I mean th this is this is getting divergent and I do have a call to but take you, soon. But, yeah. but you know it well enough to to denounce it. Well, I right? mean that doesn't take so, a whole lot when the emperor's yeah. not wearing any clothes. All you got to <laughs> say is look, there's no pants. But, I, but this Wait, is, you're I, like a southern I, I, So phone. either you know it or you don't, but if you don't, it wouldn't seem appropriate for you to say that the emperor right. has no clothes, right? I mean, I, I like I don't understand how these two threads are. How much theology do I need to know to know that 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 there's been no no epistemologically sound evidence of a deity? Well, I don't need to know any. It depends on whether zero. you want to talk to people who study theology and convince them. I mean, I, guess I don't that's, actually. That, that's, so that fair enough. That's what I'm saying. You're doing with everybody else, right? Like I, you see, I, but, but that's the, that's the point. Is I don't think that there. I, I actually personally think that there is. It is largely beyond the point of convincing. Uh, great. That for 25 it, years that people have adopted radically different epistemologies. And that they just, as hundreds of people have, thousands actually, are just going to discredit me as a white man anyway, so, which just strengthens my point. So, well, I don't think it strengthens your point that people insult you, but... but no, 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 but, it's not an insult to call me a white man. Well, it is to them. discredit <laughs> what I'm saying is an ad hominem <laughs> argument I, that uses the exact... That's the exact I, mechanism that we're criticizing. I think that... So it strengthens I, my point every time race, my race or gender is brought into it. I think that we're, we're at the heart of the matter, and I know you have to leave, and I appreciate, so I appreciate the time, but I mean, the heart of the matter is, I, I think that that is the difference, is that you, you think that, that 
that many people who disagree are beyond hope of changing their mind about it. And not not that not that anybody can change their mind. Just they're not going to by carefully and parsing out and trying to engage with them on their own terms. They're going to just recognize the devastating satire of your piece and 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 realize that their whole life's work is nope. a sham. Nope. I would be much more interested in the university administration <laughs> realizing that there is a problem going on with those fields well, and to yeah. be much stricter with how many of their demands they cave to. To undercut their political power. I don't really care if they want to have fringe academic pursuit. I have absolutely no concern about that. You mean like string, Anybody can, like string theory? <laughs> I don't have a problem with string theory either. Correct. Well, I do. I, I think... Fuck string theory. James, I, I don't want to take too much more of your time because I know you have to go. I do want to say, though, that even though we got we this is heated, I really appreciate your time coming on and actually talking to us about it and engaging with us. Absolutely. I would love to talk to you guys... Anytime, guys. Anytime. Right. I appreciate it, and, well, and yeah. we will link to your blog, and and thank you. Great. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Just a very bad wizard.